Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. We're back in Davos at the World Economic Forum, where we kicked off this podcast in 2020. I'm excited to share with you my conversations this year with amazing leaders who are driving global change. In this episode, I'm speaking with Anita Bhatia, Assistant Secretary General and Deputy Executive Director of UN Women. She shared with us the mission of UN Women and the importance of public-private partnerships in the journey to gender equity her personal commitment to educating women, and how education influenced her own trajectory in life is so powerful. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Anita, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast here in Davos. It is so great to see you. It's great to be with you, Sam. Thank you for having me. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. You have an incredible job. So first of all, thank you for the job you're doing. And I can't wait to tell our listeners about it. You're the Assistant Secretary General and the Deputy Executive Director for UN Women. Unbelievable. Tell us what that is. What do you do on a day-to-day basis? To tell you that, I first need to tell you about UN Women. UN Women is the newest agency in the UN system. We're 11 years old, and we were founded by Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. And the way he told me the story when I was honored enough to sit next to him at dinner one evening was that when he got to the UN, he looked around and he saw that there were agencies for lots of world problems, an agency dealing with children, an agency dealing with hunger, an agency dealing with trade, but nothing that was focused on solving one of the greatest problems that the world has, which is gender inequality. So he set up UN Women. Hard to believe that it took so long. It is hard to believe that it only happened 11 years ago. We're a small agency, but I like to think that we punch above our weight. And my role is really a partnerships role. It's a partnerships resource mobilization role, but it's also partnering both within the UN system and outside the UN system. And then I also have responsibility for finance and administration and HR and other functions within the org. Really, my focus is on making sure that we are growing UN women's impact and the work we do on solving for gender inequality by partnering with others because we're too small and this problem is too big for us to do it alone. I very much appreciate that. When you think of all the need there is out there to help women around the world in terms of the different countries they're in where they have needs or the different sectors where there are needs, how do you prioritize and what are the main things you're trying to do? It's a great question because strategy is really about what you don't do. And this problem is so complex that it's really hard to say this is what we're not going to do. And that's why partnerships are so important, because we can't do everything ourselves. But within that, there are, I would say, four or five things that we really focus on. The first is women's economic empowerment, because without empowerment, we cannot solve for inequality. The second is we work a lot on ending violence against women, because it is really such a major problem and one that the world doesn't pay enough attention to. Third, we work on women's representation and leadership, whether it's in parliaments or boards or companies. We work on making sure, and this is, by the way, becoming more and more important because there are more countries in conflict than ever before. We work on something called women, peace and security, which is making sure that when countries or communities are coming out of conflict, that women are at the table helping making decisions. And through all of this, we work on making sure that we are changing attitudes, mindsets, and values so that people want to support gender equality. So it's not just a specific project or program, but really on the attitude front, 
helping people change the way they might view things over a longer-term basis. And you work with girls as well. We work with women and girls, but you know what's becoming even more important in our work is working with men and boys. Because this is a problem that is not a woman's problem. It's a whole of society. It's a whole of government problem. So we have to enlist male allies. So this issue of male allyship is a really important part of our work now. The other thing I would say, which is really important, and it's one of the reasons why there's still such a big problem on gender inequality, is we work on driving more finance to the agenda. Public finance and private finance, because without proper resourcing, we're never going to be able to change the state of the world. And so you've had a background in doing that before even coming to the UN. So can you talk about that? How did that background really help you in this role? Before I joined the United Nations, I worked for many, many years with the International Finance Corporation, which is the private sector branch of the World Bank Group and the largest investor in emerging markets. Working in IFC, you understand something very fundamentally, which is that it's possible to do financially well while doing social good. So you can do well and you can do good. The other thing is you understand when you work at the World Bank Group, the important role of the private sector and business in solving for development problems because governments just don't have enough money or bandwidth to do this. Really, it takes a public-private partnership approach, and that understanding was fundamental to the impact that I want to have through my work at UN Women because when I got to the UN and to UN Women, I realized that there just wasn't enough of a focus on finance, and there wasn't enough of a focus on private sector partnerships. So that is what I have been trying to change and bring into UN Women, this understanding that while governments are very important, they will not be able to do it alone. Is there an example of a partnership with the private sector that you've managed that has really borne out some great results? An example I can give you is the work we drew through something called the Generation Equality Initiative which is a multi-stakeholder initiative. So it's government, it's business, it's civil society, it's think tanks. This platform brings everyone together around a core set of priorities, and we work together. We've had amazing commitment makers, PwC, EY, the list is long, and a lot of governments who are really interested. We did a big forum hosted initially by the governments of Mexico and France, We're going to do our next big event in September 2023. Tanzania has put its hand up as a co-host. And I expect that this week at Davos, we will probably get confirmation of another government putting its hand up. And lots of businesses want to join, too. It's so exciting. And I think you're on to something really important with the private and public partnership. How do you measure success with any of the things that you do? What to you constitutes a really good outcome? A couple of things. One, changes in laws. There are so many laws that discriminate against women in the world. There are lots of countries where women still cannot own property in the same way that men can. Women do not have the rights to open banking accounts in some countries in this day and age without getting a signature from some man in the family. Success for us is changes in discriminatory laws. That's one indicator. But we have lots of indicators, obviously, related to our work reduction in violence, improvement in outcomes for girls going to school, for instance. We want to measure impact not just through our advocacy, which is incredibly important, but also through measurable results in the lives of women and girls. It's so profound and really important that you're thinking about that that way and driving that down to such real outcomes. 
When you think of, let's say, a country where women don't yet have full rights and some of the things you talked about, when you come in and your teams or your partnerships are working on the ground, how are you changing hearts and minds? Is there something that tends to work or is this a really tough struggle when you're dealing with different cultures and history? It really does depend from country to country, and it depends on the political leadership. On the one hand, you have an extreme like Afghanistan, where every day my heart breaks for that girl in Afghanistan who has a dream about going to school and can't do it anymore. On the one hand, you have a case like Afghanistan. And then there are other countries where governments are saying, hey, I recognize that unless I invest in girls and women, we're losing a lot of human capital value. We're leaving value on the table. And hey, I, as a leader, recognize that in order to bring the country to a different level of prosperity, I've got to take women along. For example, in India, we now have a prime minister who talks about women-led development. And India is putting gender equality at the heart of the G20 agenda in its presidency of the G20. So you have extremes, but I would say overall, we've still got a long way to go. I mean, it makes me wonder how day to day do you come in and get up again and know that you might be facing a very challenging situation and just keep doing this great work. What inspires you to do that? For me, I think the thing that gets me going is the idea of a girl getting educated. It's because education has been so fundamental in my own life. I really do believe the research that education is the single biggest lever for development. When I think about a girl going to school, that inspires me. And I also do think about women who are victims of violence and about the need for the world to just do a hell of a lot more on that issue. When you look at the hotspots today, Afghanistan, as you mentioned, Ukraine, and even India, where there's still violence, how do you think about trying to make progress in any of those places right now? What could progress look like in a year, two years' time? We can't really discuss that with other countries. But in other countries, one of the things we do is we support women's rights organizations on the ground grassroots organizations, because they are the voice of women. They know what's happening, and we have to keep supporting them, and the world needs to keep supporting them, because otherwise we will not hear from women. Look how courageous these women are. Look at these women in Iran out on the streets, risking their lives every day. Look at that brave woman in Ukraine who's trying to fight traffickers while she's trying to take her kids out safely. When I look around the world, I am so inspired, not necessarily by women who are celebrities or women in visible positions of leadership. What I am inspired by are ordinary acts of everyday courage. It's amazing when you say it that way, and I totally agree with you. And I think it's something that we really need to shed the light on what's happening and the great groups that are on the ground. I'd love to hear about your background. How did you get to this place? Tell us about how you grew up and the influences that you had before even embarking on your career. I grew up in Calcutta in India, big bustling 20 million city. I'm a city girl. I was very inspired by my mother, actually, who was a very progressive teacher and believed firmly in education. I think my journey really epitomizes the impact of education on a girl's life. So my mother died when I was very young. She died when I was in high school. I was 18 when she died. The story in our family is that when she knew she was going to die, she called my dad and said, Whatever you do, do not marry the girls off. I want you to educate them. So my dad 
was a very strong feminist, actually. He kept his promise. He made sure the girls were educated. And when I said, after college, I want to go to the U.S. for graduate school, he could have been that man or that dad who said, you know what, I need to be looked after, you can't go, because I knew a lot of men who did that to their daughters. My dad said, you need to go to the U.S., you have a scholarship, go. So I went to graduate school in the U.S. I had a mentor in the U.S., somebody who wasn't in the department where I was studying. I was studying for a Ph.D. in political science at Yale, and I had a mentor who was a very well-known, famous Indian trade economist called T.N. Srinivasan. He said to me, I think you really should work in development given your passion and your interest. And so he introduced me to a number of people. So I ended up working in a field that had nothing to do with what I was studying. So I ended up working in development at the World Bank and had a very interesting career spanning many decades working in many different parts of the world. I started my career working in Africa. I will date myself by telling you that I started working on privatization in Africa because when I started working in Africa, most businesses belonged to governments in Africa. I still remember one of my first trips to Africa was to discuss with the government of Tanzania how it needed to sell this brewery that it had. And we were saying to them, this should be run by entrepreneurs, not by government. I worked in the former Soviet Union, that tells you how old I am, on all the stands. Then I moved to Latin America and I spent a decade working in Latin America with and for the IFC. In between, I had my own firm. I had a consulting and advisory firm for a while. But then I went back into IFC and then was approached by somebody at UN Women to consider working at the United Nations. And here I am. It's an incredible journey. And you're the perfect person for this, being so global in nature. So what are the biggest challenges you face in the role? And tell us again, your partners that you work with, what would you like from them in terms of helping you solve those challenges? I think the biggest challenge that we have is that the world hasn't sufficiently understood the power of addressing gender equality and the potential that it offers. So there's plenty of research out there about, hey, if we invest in women, we will add $13 trillion to global GDP. But you have to break that down, and that's got to be real for every country and for every business. While there is a lot of attention to the issue relative to what needs to be done, there's not enough investment in gender equality and there's not enough focus on driving it when other things are calling for your attention. And what's happening today is that policymakers are so busy dealing with the economic crisis, the lingering impact of COVID, climate change, war, crises, that gender equality tends to get short shrift. We need to move the dialogue to a place where you say, we can't solve these other problems unless we think about women. Or if we include women in the solutions, you will actually solve these problems faster and better in a more sustainable way. So we need to get to that place and we're not there yet. I mean, at the very least, we need women at the table solving these problems as they're directly impacted by all of these things and obviously live what those impacts are day to day. That's absolutely true. And when you look at women in decision making, the numbers are still pathetic. So everyone says, yeah, there are more women in government and business. Look at how many C-suite execs are women today. It's still very small. 
Do you know that out of the 193 member states of the United Nations, only 27 have a head of state or government who's a woman? Only 14 countries in the world have gender equal cabinets. We're nowhere near parity. We have to stop being complacent to answer your earlier question on what do I want from more partners, more ambition, and a much greater sense of urgency. Also said earlier on that men have an important role to play here. And I've also said that men and boys included really need to help enact progress on an individual level. Can you say more about that? And how are you trying to engage more men in the solutions? I don't want men to be bystanders. Men need to call out bad male behaviors and toxic masculinity when they see it. The example I like to give is that famous picture we all saw last year of Ursula von der Leyen in this meeting. There were all these men and nobody had a chair for her. I forget who it was. Some guy sat down and not one of the men there said, hey, excuse me, it's Ursula von der Leyen. Can we get her a chair? And they sort of left her standing. We need men to say, that's not good. And we're going to call it out. We're not going to be bystanders. But that's a very small, microscopic illustration. It has got to extend to every field. Men have got to say, I'm not going to hang out with people who are abusers. They need to be calling out bad behaviors, not encouraging them. And they need to speak up about issues like violence against women and be more vocal, visible advocates. That's what I want from men. And so in Davos, I have made a call to action to men at Davos and said, you need to acknowledge that you guys actually still hold the power. You need to challenge negative masculinities and you need to share space. When you are on an all-male panel, it shouldn't be the women who are saying, hey, we're not there. It should be the men saying, where are the women? And how is the message being received? Hard to tell. (laughs) So far, I think they're listening. There are lots of well-intentioned men. We just need more of them. For sure. What do you hope for the future of UN Women? What are some of your maybe short or longer term goals? First of all, I think the fact that UN Women really sits in a hub and spoke system as the center hub that can influence others is a very powerful idea. So I'd like to see UN Women deepen its partnerships within the UN system, but actually with other actors outside governments and business. Business is the largest creator of jobs in the world today. So without the private sector, we cannot get this job done. So I'd like to see deepened private sector partnerships. I'd like to see UN Women actually grow, and we're trying to do that. We're a $500 million entity, so we're tiny. When you think of the amount of money sloshing around in the system and the amount of liquidity there is in the international financial system, more of that capital needs to go, not necessarily just to UN women, but to those partners who can make real change on the ground. And I want to see women's rights organizations fully supported because those guys really struggle on a day-to-day basis. Anita, it is such a pleasure to speak with you. Your work is so important. I want to thank you for being here and thank you for the work that you do in general and the messages that you bring. It's really an inspiration. Oh, thank you so much, Sam. And thank you for taking the time to talk with me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Anita. I'm grateful to how she's using her platform to support women around the world. 
I share her belief that improving the lives of more women and girls would unleash substantial economic and social benefits for everyone. I look forward to seeing how UN Women continues to make progress around the world. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.